I had a teacher once, his name was Rabbi Zalman Schachter, and he taught this way. He said, the mind is like tofu, but tofu, he said, does not have any taste by itself. What matters is what you marinate it in. If you marinate it in a sweet marinade, but you cook with it, it's going to taste good. If you marinate it in something that's bitter, what you eat will be unpleasant. And I thought about it a couple of times during the weekend. I thought this is a very good marinade to rest in. The two days went by during which time I never thought to myself, oh, I, I didn't think about what's happening in the world. I mean, I knew people brought it up, we talked about it, but I didn't think about it in the same agitated way that I often do when I'm startled by it, when I'm reminded of it. I thought about it not as a, in an uncaring way, but as a, in a benevolent way. What can I continue to have the energy to do to make things better in the world for myself and everybody else? I per personally cannot fix the whole world, but what can I do? Does that make sense to all of you? That's, that's the only move that doesn't create more suffering. And at the end of the weekend, we read the uh, Metta Sutta, the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. And I realized, we read it together twice, actually. And I realized as I was reading it, that it, uh, a couple of things. First of all, how good it makes me feel that for, and for centuries, people have saying, these are the instructions for peace of mind. These are the instructions to build uh, a mind that is is at ease, no matter what the circumstances. Not only at ease, but benevolent. At ease and move to bless. I thought to myself, it's such a remarkable thing to say. You look at the world now, and it's in such a terrible shape. Not only what's going on politically, not only what's going on pandemically, but what's going on climate-wise. It's not a good moment in the history of the world, but to be able to, at least for any this moment, to be able to say, this is what's happening, what can I still do? So I would like, I was going to have a sit right away with the Metta Sutta, but we didn't. Um, I talked all about that. But I'd like us to do it now, and I'd like for Carlita to put up on the screen and you'll notice that it says, this is the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness, and Sylvia's tentative revisionist version. Because when I'm teaching it to people and I read it with people, I have to keep saying, stop. Now, I would change that to this and this, and stop. I would change this to this and this. And this morning, I discovered that we found another version that was closer to what I wanted to say, but not quite. And then in the five minutes before five to 10 and 10, we fixed it. So what I'd like us to do is I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to read it to you and you can see it on your screen. And I would like you to keep your eyes open and read it out loud with me. We won't hear you, because if we heard you, it would be really a rumble and it won't work online, alas. 
but I really want you to read this, and then when we finish, we'll sit for five minutes or so, maybe a little bit more, and you can open your eyes, close your eyes, and think about what line you really like, or what sounds off to you, or have an opinion, or you can just feel how your body feels when it confronts this understanding. Okay? Everybody okay? Everybody got it on there? There you go. You have it on your screen. So you have to read it out loud with me. Here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be honest and forthright. Straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a parent protects with their life their child, their only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, not confused by sense desires, is not born again into suffering. That's the first time I've read it aloud in the annotated version. It's the first time you've heard it in the annotated version. So I'd like to spend a few minutes with you quietly. Maybe Carlita put it back up. You can look at it again. Otherwise, just close your eyes. or read it again to yourself and feel it in your body and in your mind.
what I'm discovering more and more is that um, my own mind keeps teaching itself what it really needs to know. It elaborates um, on, it keeps on working, like it's doing its homework even as I'm asleep or doing other things. If I'm looking for, if my attention is um, in the direction of this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to have that kind of a mind that is not reborn into suffering. So one of the things that I uh, like very much about this version of the Metta Sutta and the versions that we've been using, essentially the same, I just made the words a little bit more modern. But I actually uh, enjoy reciting them. I, I, I get a, a kind of a kick at reciting them um, with groups because I, I think in the course of many years of uh, them being changed and changed and changed, it's probably a literary thing, but the first 11, I think, uh, lines of it when are instructions for how to behave. And you may know that the Buddha's teachings is orga are organized into training of ethics, training of the mind, and training of uh, wisdom. And the training of ethics uh, is certainly, we, we discussed that, but when I began in 1977, was not, ethics was not a, an imperative in people going on retreats. It was um, the, the, the meditation world, the Buddhist world, came to the United States after, in, in the 70s and in the 80s, when people um, were challenging the old norms, people were, were changed by the Second World War and what had happened there, uh, with the awareness of the terrible things that people can do to each other with an awareness of the fragility of life and a new beginning to people thinking, what is this all about and what are we doing? And um, people uh, stopped, uh, uh, people started to want to take um, uh, liberal arts courses, more philosophy was thriving then. Uh, what's this all about and what are we doing and what's the world about? and there were all the new kinds of um, things that people could go to a workshop in Arika training, a workshop in yoga, a workshop in Tai Chi, a workshop in TM, a workshop in Vipassana. Uh, there were whole magazines devoted to different workshops. And what was it called? It was called the, um, not awareness moment. Uh, anyway, it had a name. The, uh, but everybody was waking up. And I think that the Second World War had really woken up a lot of people. The lives of my parents did not made brought, brought us uh, brought us many of us, the young people who were studying, were difficult. And now the future, we were frightened by cold wars. People were, and the whole question of what are we doing in life? What are we supposed to do? And let's meditate our way into doing it became really the compelling interest for so many people. 
Nobody said, let's all behave ourselves and try to be super good because look what the terrible things people can do to each other if they don't. They said, I want to I meditate and get out of this world. Who could get in a higher sublime state from meditating? And there were all kinds of things that people were promised. Literally that you could um, levitate, which I never really thought people, I didn't want to levitate. Uh, that was not interesting to me. I sometimes tell people that I wanted to shine in the dark because I love that. They told stories about people who, gurus, that when you sat with them, you could see light coming out of them. And I couldn't figure out how that could happen, but it sounded good to me. I, I uh, secretly would have liked to shine in the dark, but I did not understand that it was going to change the habits of my mind. The habit that I didn't like but couldn't have named at that time, was the habit of fretting and worrying and uh, fretting pr pr primarily about, uh-oh, this and uh-oh, that. A lot of people have that habit. I don't have that habit. I have the habit of imagining cat catastrophe now, but I don't believe it. So I actually have freed myself of the pain from that habit. My mind is strong in the way it is, everybody's mind. People who have a short fuse and get angry very fast, their mind is strung that way. With practice, the mind still feels, ah, but it doesn't do it. The mind calms down and is able to make a decision, is this true and what's the right thing to do? In those days, the right thing to do to make changes in your mind was assumed to be you meditated. Nobody told you exactly what was going to happen. They said you'd have a clearer understanding of what's true, that things pass, that everything that arises passes away, that being attached to things is, is the cause of suffering, is suffering, and that everything is related to everything else, that uh, because of this, because of that, this. And those are the three characteristics of experience, and, they, and my teacher said, you'll understand them better. And I magically, I guess, that my anxieties about things would go away. And I've said often over the years, my anxieties are less and much more manageable because I recognize them as being a mind habit and not true. But I really wanted them to go away magically. I wanted the stuff that upset my mind not to anymore upset my mind. There's so much in the world now to upset the mind. What's going on? It's, I think it's inevitable that our mind will be upset. How am I going to respond to that without giving up, without becoming embittered, without stopping my activism in whatever way I do it? What's going to keep my mind engaged and wholesome and wishing for the best? If it works out for the world, that'd be great. And if it doesn't, I can't do anything about it. But how am I going to do it in a way that doesn't cause suffering for more people and not for myself either? And I think that this sutta is so interesting because the whole first third of it is about ethics. And we didn't talk very much about ethics in those days on retreats. We talked about insights and understanding emptiness, <clears throat> understanding emptiness, understanding impermanence, 
But I think ethics is a wonderful thing to think about. It calms the mind to think about what can I do to make life better for somebody else. And all the ethics are not doing something that would cause another person pain. I love the beginning of this. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, period. They should be uh, truthful and straightforward. Truthful, forthright, straightforward, gentle in speech, humble, not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Instead, let them wish for all beings in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. And it was decades before I realized, actually, that if I could cultivate the kind of mind that would be filled with that wish, may all beings be at ease, I would be comforting myself and not creating more problems in my family, in my world, in my work, in my community. That actually attention to ethical behavior was as important as the insight, I think, of maybe it's, no, I'm going to take that back because you can't say it's as important, less important, more important as seeing that things change inevitably, that everything is a cause of everything else. And that suffering is the extra tension in the mind that cannot allow things to be unfolding as they are. With my input, but with only, I can only have my my only input, not enough to make a difference in the whole world, but to make enough difference in my own mind and in my own community and in my own relationships. I read an article the other day, Sunday, Sunday in the New York Times. I'm going to read you this article and I'm going to ask you a question about it. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that ethics make you happy. Um, morality makes you feel good. When my grandfather was dying and he was 98 years old, um, he died of oldness, actually. He didn't have anything else the matter with him. He died of oldness. Um, and he was extremely deaf, extremely deaf. But if you shouted, he could hear you. And uh, he said, uh, when I die, he said, I feel good about that when I die, there isn't going to be anybody who's going to have something bad to say about me. And what he was pleased about in his life is that he had led a life where he didn't cause havoc. My grandfather, oh, I haven't told this story in so long, it just popped in my mind. My grandfather uh, came to the United States in uh, uh, 1909. He married my grandmother in 1910. He, my mother was born in 1911. My grandfather was illiterate in any language and um, I was always a um, um, a workman on it. He he did um, he did uh, 
painting. He did, um, he mostly worked in factories on piecework on different kinds of articles. He worked in a luggage factory. He was very proud of himself that he, uh, he had the really hard job of putting uh, sewed together um, suitcase cover over the frame. And he said that had a special skill and that on the assembly line, it was he who put the, the sewn together leather over that frame. And so if he missed a day of work, the other workers on the assembly line would have not been able to work because the work would not move along. So he felt very proud of himself that he never missed a day of work because it would have hurt other people. He was a very kind and mild-mannered man and sensitive to what other people needed. And he said in the end, I just remembered that, when I die, there's not going to be anybody who's going to have anything bad to say about me. And I'm thinking about not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. That's right out of the uh, Metta Sutta. And I, it would be a wonderful thing to say about oneself, that the wise wouldn't have anything to say. Anyway, I, so in other words, a fancy way to say that is scrupulous attention to ethics makes me feel good. It lifts up my mind. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give you a chance to respond to this. Here's a, this is in the Sunday New York Times, day before yesterday, in a column called The Ethicist which I always write, read because it makes me feel good. People are asking ethical questions. Here's the question. Recently, I rented a private office in a co-working space so I could work on personal writing projects. About two weeks into my tenure, I heard screams. When I went to investigate, I saw a man beating someone savagely with a metal pipe. I ran to my office, called 911, and then returned only to see the man walking in my direction. I ran back to my office and hid until the police arrived. The victim, she was the office manager, was rushed to the hospital where she was declared dead. The story that emerged is that the man, a fellow client who had been in the building, who had been living in his office, was being evicted by the office manager. Because I'm a writer, it's not surprising that a number of my friends, writers and non-writers alike, have asked whether I'm writing about this story. Yet from the beginning, I have struggled to even talk about what I witnessed. I do not want to dine out on it. It feels unseemly to me, if not outright wrong, to take advantage of my very accidental connection to this murder and its victim. I'm troubled by the idea of viewing another woman's death as material for writing about. What are the ethics of writing about what is, at heart, someone else's tragedy? Doesn't say name withheld. Anybody have an idea what's ethical to do? What is this answer I'm going to say? What do you think? Anybody have a thought? Oh, there you go, Sarah. Hi. Um, I would say 
maybe it would depend on the purpose of writing and, and the audience for whom you're writing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. So the what is the motive? No, not what is the motive, but well, maybe what is the motive also? So it would depend on, because when you write something, it's out in the world, you know, that uh, anybody could read it, I guess. I don't know. What else does anybody think? But thank you very much. Somebody else, Vic Victoria. Victoria. Yeah, I think um, I'm a writer myself, and I think <clears throat> it is very important from an ethical point of view to do a kind of self-examination on the ultimate purpose of what one is writing. If it's going to do good in the world, if it's going to be educational or, or spur others on to, um, for example, take action against the social injustice, or if it's going to be um, uplifting. But I think to do it, I think so much of journalism in particular is, um, is devoted to sensationalism. You know, it's bad news sells much better than good news. And so I think to play into that, which, which sadly most journalists in our society today do, um, I think is fraught with ethical um, difficulties. I think it's, it's a, it is a very valid point. In the case of this particular story, I, I don't really, um, I don't know what this person writes on a daily basis. So I think it's kind of, it's kind of um, ambiguous. I think everything there very, very important. One more, Cindy is going to say something. Oh, and Heather they can say something also, but Cindy and Heather, go ahead, Cindy. Rosie. Okay, Cindy, Rosie, and Heather. <laughs> it seems Who is it? You, Cindy, go ahead. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I just saw a play on Sunday at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival where I live called Unseen. And this is the entire topic of the play. It's an, a journalist, a photojournalist. And what does that, how should she photograph things? And what should she photograph and what shouldn't she photograph? And all the ambiguities and all the things, all the people affected by it. It was so powerful. It was really amazing. But the whole play for an hour and a half was talking about this. And, you know, it was amazing. It's called Unseen. And it was really really powerful. And it was this issue is what is okay and what is not, you know, and all the people that it involves in it, Yeah, you know. I'm going to so, come back to the two more people who have questions, but I want to say for years when I had a uh, psychotherapy practice in my studio where I saw people, I had a, a framed copy of the Buddha's, um, the Buddha's, um, uh, uh, the the Buddha's teachings on uh, from the Vinaya of uh, on admonishing somebody, and it said uh, so. It's telling somebody you did the wrong thing or something, uh, and it said before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus. I see if I get it right. Before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus. Uh, is it for this person's benefit or their loss that I'm saying this? Is, is it um, out of kindness or not am I saying this? Uh, in due season will I speak, not out of season. 
that is now a good time to bring that up. Uh, uh, in truth will I speak, not in falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. Those are the five Vinaya rules uh, before admonishing. And once somebody, and I guess we were talking about admonishing, which comes more from talking about uh, between parents and children or parents and each other or couples and each other, where people start a bicker over you did this, you did that. And uh, the, the uh, possibility of saying, you know, I have something I'd like to talk to you about and that is now a good time seems, you know, like like regular ordinary garden variety. But people used to take that. People used to ask me, can I borrow this plaque and take it home and photocopy it? And in the days that you had to do it, nobody had a camera to take a picture of it and put it up on my refrigerator, which is everybody's favorite mode for continuing information now. But the thing about any one of them in, in truth, in gentleness, in a kindness, in at the right time, all of that, recognizing that the information might be useful, but how to get it across. What were you going to ask, Heather? I'm also a person who writes. And what's interesting to me about that New York Times piece is that they seem to want to know about this person writing about this right away. And to me, for somebody to write about something like this, it would take time to think about what is the meaning of this event and how does it fit in with other things that you're writing about and the themes that you're thinking about rather than as Victoria was saying, you know, sensationalizing and then just kind of splashing it out there. You remind me with that of a, I can't remember who made up this particular acronym, but the acronym, uh, but it fits. And the acronym is WAIT. Why am I talking? <laughs> WAIT. So anyway, Rosie, what were you going to say? I was going to say that, um, you know, you pause and then think of how you could react um, or if there's a positive action you could take. So this writer could, you know, make a, a vow that um, if he puts this out, if he writes something and he's paid for it, he could put that money towards a victim support group, or, you know, we all have to choose how we react. We're seeing violence daily, and we have the opportunity to, you know, choose how we're going to react, if maybe we're going to contribute to gun control or, or something, but we're all in the same um, situation of seeing violence and having the opportunity to you know, maybe write about it or, or respond in a mindful way. So, I'm, I always these days think a lot about Thich Nhat Hanh recently passed out of this world and talking about peace in every, in every step that if we would just slow down, maybe it's, maybe it's again back to wait, think about why am I doing this? What's my, uh, what's my uh, motive? I used to discover 
years ago, my husband was very interested in the Dharma, but not so much interested in being um, a, uh, a meditation practitioner as I was. So I went to many more retreats than he did. And I would go to on a retreat for two weeks, say, and then I'd come home. And I'd be very happy to see him after the two weeks and quite slow, quite focused from two weeks of paying attention from morning till night, specifically as the only thing that you do. And I'd come home and I'd noticed for at least a few days uh, in the course of just conversation, uh, he might say, well, not about the meditation, but about anything. What do you think about X, Y, Z? And I'd be about to say something and I would have a, like a readout in my mind of I was about to say a few things. Um, and I would think to myself, this one is actually helpful. This one is actually like show off posturing to show how clever I am or how amusing I am or how something else I am, how much ego there was, how much upmanship there was like, uh, I know more than you, or it's embarrassing even to say that to you now, but not so embarrassing because I think, I think that's a valid thing to be watching, but that with my mind um, settled down and not so confused by uh, the random confusion that fills the mind and seeing clearly, it sees that every time we say something, it could be true, but it might also not be the right time, or it might also be show, showing off, or it might also be not necessary, and he could figure it out by himself. I don't know. I see a couple of people smiling, a couple of people just looking. You don't see this in yourself ever, that there's a little bit of a second agenda in what you're saying. <laughs> so I'm not proud of myself when I do that, so I don't do it. <laughs> Okay, we'll have one more of that. I was reading, because um, this is another thing to think about of in, in daily life. Um, I read the, uh, the book section every week because I like to see what new books are around. And I also read the letters to the editor. And I read a letter to the editor of some people, uh, uh, somebody wrote about a book called Fly Girl. And uh, it was reviewed along with another book that had to do with um, the uh, a woman who was uh, it was written by a woman who was very instrumental in getting legislation on behalf of um, flight attendants. Um, and the person who reviewed it obviously was very impressed with the second one uh the second book which was power, you know how people could make a difference and um, not very amused by the stories of the first one where the first one was about how much fun this particular person had being a flight attendant in the very beginning of flight attendance and she apparently flew for a few years when she was 22 or 23. And she said, I got to see places all over the world. And, uh, and then, uh, and the things that uh, we had to, we had to, she does talk about 
that people had to weigh in and it was uh, you could lose your job by gaining three pounds and uh, you had to wear very uncomfortable high heels. But she said that was just what was going on. And really, I had a good time. And she tells funny stories. And the reviewer thought it was trivial and really was quite serious. It must have been. I, I actually went back. I read the I read the initial the original review and I read letters that people wrote back where they said um, so-and-so's scathing review of Anne Hood's new memoir seems to boil down to resentment that uh, Anne Hood actually enjoyed working as a flight attendant. And uh, she didn't, uh, uh, she talked about the difficulties of being uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in an industry that was in fact male dominated and was selling themselves, advertising themselves as you could look at these beautiful women while flying. And it says uh, uh, that Anne Hood's book is not a history, but it claims it contains plenty of context. It's a personal account and contrary to this other person's review, she deals squarely with the negatives of the profession. It's also a coming of age story about being a flight attendant gave uh, and how it gave her professional skills and insight into the world and a ticket to see the world. And in dismissing her book as a Doris Day of the Skies, she's the reviewer has fallen victim to the very sexism she derides. The author and the reader who would enjoy this book deserve better. So then I began to think about then I went back in and I looked at the original review that this this scathing review. I wanted to see what a scathing review was. And it wasn't so terrible, but it but it certainly was not going to help her sales. And the woman who went to work early and for a couple of years then went on to be a writer and uh, has written a couple of novels. And I'm thinking here is this reviewer uh, effectively condemning her book. I thought to myself, well, I don't know, you know, she may have written such a, a scathing review, but enough people read it and wrote this counter review that maybe boosted up her sales. But I think how easy it is for the purposes of being sort of holier than thou or wiser than you or show off or something. You can demolish a whole person's career by what you say. And really about sensitivity. And then I started to think about, should we have reviewers? That's what somebody asked me. I said some, I told somebody about that yesterday. And they said, well, you have to have a reviewer to go to the symphony or something and say how the program was. I said, well, could you be, have a kind reviewer? Could you say, I was really disappointed for when they played the Shostakovich symphony because I, I really love it, and this was not the best rendition I ever heard. Could you say that, you know, that uh, tell the truth about it if people are thinking of buy, uh, buying a ticket to tomorrow? Or, uh, is there a way to have criticism without it being uh, detrimental to somebody's career? They had an off night. Or should we have criticism? Or should we have reviews? 
So I, I you know, I, I just want to let, let maybe one or two people have to, <laughs> have something to say. Many years ago, many many years ago, I had uh, a season subscription to the symphony with my husband just when Davies Hall had been built. And we had great seats in the middle of the orchestra because I knew someone <laughs> in the box office who fixed it up that we had those great seats. Anyway, I mean, we bought the tickets, but we had great seats. And they were so great that they were right behind the reviewers for the Chronicle and the um, um, the uh, the uh, one of the other, the San Francisco Chronicle and one of the evening papers, but a couple, and I knew them from how they looked and because we were there all sneezing with them, you overhear stuff. And they always opened their, uh, their playbill when the playing started and they made notes in the margins. And one day they, uh, one of them left in the, uh, inter in the intermission and didn't come back, but reviewed it in the following day and gave the, the after, the after, the thing that they played after the intermission gave it a great review, but they didn't play it actually in real life. They had for some reason to change it at the last minute. And uh, here's a sterling review of a piece of music that didn't get played. And here's this person really caught in the tracks. And I thought to myself, this is such a funny business. So I think to myself, maybe people shouldn't. What do you think? People write reviews. Somebody got to say something. Okay, two reviews, Victoria. There you are. So I've been I've been in a position to review uh, some stuff. Um, I used to review books, and um, I've also written in a critical way. And I've also been in a position to write descriptions for marketing, like for catalog. And to Sylvia's point, I think you absolutely can tell the truth and not shoot somebody down. There's, there's no reason for that. If you do do that, it is an upmanship and it feels crappy. And it, um, and I, I understand that there's, there is sort of this like cleverness ethos among reviewers. And sometimes you can just like read and go, wow, how did they ever come up with that metaphor or that, way of and and you can kind of get blown away by that but if if I'm gonna if I'm gonna say something I personally am gonna use my mindfulness skills and say you know try to align what is true even if it's not you know glowing in a way that um gives the individual and an audience um information so that I mean maybe this person wants to to, to grow their skill. So I just think that it should be helpful. Thank you very much. And our other Victoria. Hi. Um, well, it's amazing you told that story, Sylvia, because my godmother, um, who has long since passed away, 
um, was a violinist in the San Francisco Symphony for her entire career. And she told me that story um, that you just told and um, the outcome, I mean, unless it happened twice, but it's an amazing story. Um, and the outcome of the story, the story that she told was that 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 reviewer actually lost his job because of the unethical, you know, that that he just was too lazy instead of being honest and saying I left it intermission because my wife was ill or whatever, um, just sort of cavalierly going on and writing a, a fake review. So um, anyway, it was amazing to hear that story because it brought me right back to um, to to my godmother. Um, but. I I wrote I did I've written um, reviews of all the arts art um, visual arts and concert reviews and um, dance and theater and what I've always tried to do um, is is use my expertise in those fields to write something that's really educational mm-hmm. so to give enough material to the reader so that it's not just about you know is this a good performance or not? Or should I go to that gallery and see that show or not? But rather to give some, some background and some information to make it then um, if one does decide to, you know, engage in that cultural experience, it's to sort of provide a foundation that I've always felt that, that that's my, um, that's the only purpose that makes sense because um, I mean, of course, secretly my purpose with concert reviews was to get tickets to everything, <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> but the, I feel for that, that's um, I, I have done. I, I really appreciated your, your honesty about your um, about the, when you were coming back from retreat and listening to your own thoughts about what you were about to say to your husband, because I did, in fact, um, uh, make them, you know, I did write some really scathing, devastating reviews in my day. And I felt fabulous at the time, you know, because I I was witty and clever and I had this acid, you know, tongue and everything or pen, I should say. And then I felt awful afterwards. And there's nothing more horrible than having that go into print. And then you have to carry the the consequences. So, um, so I think that your your story was really, really important in terms of the ethics that because um, I think we can all fall prey to that smart alecky, um, especially if we like words, you know, it's so easy to to um, fall in love with our own intelligence or whatever. And it's so dangerous. So I want to read to you now and um, then we'll do our meditation because it fits now. I want to read to you if I can find it. Oh, where is it? It's a piece called The Bliss of Blamelessness. Because what I was going to call this talk is... What did I do? I had all these different pages. It might be here. It might be here. I I was... Here it is. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I was thinking, because I particularly want to talk about ethics... And just as I started to say earlier, that the whole of the Dharma, the the most uh, elementary and the most complicated, uh, this is Buddhism, has the practice uh, really portioned into the development of ethics, the uh, development of mental skills, and the uh, consolidation of wisdom. And uh, the Dalai Lama, I remember, 
uh, in recent years, and when I've seen him live in places in recent years, he's made a point of saying, I'm really not, when I meet people, I'm not concerned about whether or not they're Buddhists. I'm concerned about whether or not they're an ethical person. And it becomes clear that we may have prioritized, we meaning Westerners, who really uh, were so drawn to the contemplative side of the practice that what we wanted to do is sit and have our minds suffused with the pleasure of spaciousness and goodwill fills the heart if we can. But we didn't talk a lot about the, the, the zeitgeist was not right. We didn't talk a lot about um, ethical behavior. But I'm very interested in the fact that in the Metta Sutta, the whole first 11 uh, lines of it say, don't do this, you should be this way, this way, this way, this way. And then it says, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I love that line. It's one of my favorite lines because it looks to me like the instructions are, this is the kind of person who should be like this, like this, like this, like this. And then it sounds to me like someone says, well, let's put in one more line in case we left out something else that they should be attending to. Not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. It's like my grandfather saying, no one will have anything that they have to say about me bad. And then you feel good about it. There are two terms in Buddhism that we don't use very much there in ancient texts, but they're the terms hiri and otapa, and they're translated as moral shame and moral dread. And moral shame is when you do something and then you realize you've done a thing like that and you feel bad because it's after it and you can't take it back off the paper. And dread is the realization that when you do anything, it spreads infinitely in all directions and has repercussions. The karma of it, uh, you never know the end of the karma of it. it. It's not like you get struck down because you said something not right, but the, the pain that you may have caused in the world from the ongoing repercussions and how that ramifies itself over the world and whose lives were affected by it in a, um, in an immediate way, or in uh, uh, a, a uh, an eventual way, the the term in the karma discussions in Buddhist text is called uh, proximal karma and distal karma. Proximal karma is what I am doing in my immediate life now, and the distal karma is what's happening for people who later on are parented by or befriended by or meet somebody who tells them that because we that's how that's how the world lives it perpetuates itself on thoughts and stories and feelings and so you want to really i think when i think about that uh, when i first studied that years ago i thought anything i do might be the wrong thing to say and maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. And then, of course, that doesn't work because if you don't say anything at all, you can't contribute. Um, there's a story, I, I want for us to meditate. I'll tell you the story, and then we'll meditate. Then I'll read you a 
the line that should be the the name of today's talk, which is what is the bliss of blamelessness? So we're going to get up to this. It's a it it comes from a uh, it's a Dharma talk, which I'll read to you a piece of from the time of the Buddha. This is translated from the Pali, which is the language that the Buddha spoke. What is the bliss? Oh, they said there are four bliss. There are four kinds of bliss that might be attained in the proper season on proper occasions by a householder partaking of sensuality, which is most of us. The bliss of having wealth, the bliss of making use of wealth, the bliss of debtlessness, and the bliss of blamelessness. I'll tell you, it's hard to read because it's it's in the context of 2,500 years ago. It's a very male-oriented, a son and a certain family. But it's talked about the, the three first blisses are the bliss of having that whatever you have is righteously obtained and worked for. And it does say the sweat of your brow and... Uh, that if you have means that were righteously accumulated, you should have that pleasure. I have means. I don't have to be frightened. But then higher than that, I think, is because it's in, in this order, is the bliss of making use of wealth. And it says he when a person through good means and uh, hard work and literally sweat of brow uh, has maintain wealth, uh, they should use it for the benefit of other people. Um, we were, I was just telling you about my seats in um, Davies Hall, which is uh, Adele Davies contributed the main bulk of the money to build the Symphony Hall in San Francisco. And she was an old woman at that time and gave a significant amount of money. And someone interviewed her for the newspaper, and they asked her, Miss Davies, why did you give that big sum of money to the symphony? And she said, because I had it. And people always, you know, often laugh about that because you expect she's going to say, I wanted to bring so much pleasure to people that are, she said, I had it. But actually, the, it's a part of understanding is that in, there are two parts to giving something in terms of dana or a gift. One is having the stuff to give. And then the second is wanting to do that with that. You have to have two parts. You have to have something to give and then you have to want to do it. And the third is the bliss of debtlessness, not owing anything to anybody. I'm going to take that to mean not misusing anybody ever. Like my grandfather said, is nobody going to have something to say bad on me? That's the next highest bliss. And he said, with the, uh, here it is, the bliss of blamelessness is where a uh, follower of the Buddhist teachings has blameless bodily karma, verbal karma, mental karma, 
when they think I'm endowed with blameless karma in all those areas. Such a person experiences bliss and joy. This is called the bliss of blamelessness. And I understand that as knowing I have not caused anybody gratuitous pain, extra pain. I've not caused anybody any pain by any act that I did thought, word, or deed. Which means I have to be thinking all the time about, not thinking about it all the time, but having it as a screen for what comes out of me in terms of a thought or a word or a deed. I think that's such a crucial what uh, everybody's been talking about, about you have a thought, I should say this would be so clever, it would be so, people would be so interested in it, would secure my place in critics, uh, you know, well-known critics, but, um, or people who say, no, I'm not going to do that. I love that idea of having in your mind all the time is what I'm about to do for my benefit and the benefit of others. And if it's not, don't do it. So I thought as our, uh, that's what I wanted to do. That's where the, the term, the bliss of blamelessness comes from. It doesn't, and it doesn't happen accidentally. You have to be thinking or you have to have it built into your, um, what do you call it? Into your algorithm, is it built into your mind? Is what I'm about to do going to be for my benefit and the benefit of everybody else? Otherwise, don't do it. A long time ago, I was in a restaurant with a friend and uh, I uh, went to the ladies' room and uh, I was combing my hair and about washing my hands and she was combing her hair and she had a, her hair all tied up with um, a kind of a clip and she took out the clip and she shook her hair and this is 30 years ago. I wrote it about, about it a long time ago. So people were wearing big hair, kind of like Farrah Fawcett at the time, like just big, wonderful hair and it was really a wondrous hairstyle and I looked at it and I said oh you have beautiful hair just I said that while we're both looking in the mirror I'm washing my hands and she looked at me and she said well if it makes you feel any better I'm very unhappy and I thought oh so first of all I felt you know and I I left but I thought to my I went back to my table and I was Certainly uh, distressed about that. I was also distressed that she thought I looked like the kind of person that would feel better to knowing that she didn't feel good. I told my uh, table mate, my friend Martha, who uh, was with me that this happened, and she got indignant on my behalf. Whoa, she has no idea what kind, what a kind person you were. And she said. Uh, I said, uh, I wonder if I'm, she said, do you see her around in the restaurant? And then I didn't. And then I said, oh, maybe she's so upset and left. But then I thought, I have no idea. Uh, then I thought maybe 
um, maybe who knows here she is all i know is she was took a clip out of her hair and she had great hair and maybe she just had uh been there with her partner who just broke up with her and maybe she had just had the first alcoholic drink she'd had in 27 years and broken her sobriety maybe she had just gotten word that something else terrible had happened in her life and so i i martha was saying to me wow that wasn't nice of her and i thought well i don't know if it wasn't nice of her maybe something really terrible was going on and i really took it to heart that i hadn't even thought about would this be a good thing to say it looked like such a nice thing to say yeah i'd like it if somebody said your hair looks great so i thought about that and i thought but you never really know so I was thinking about it, and the next day, I was talking to another friend of mine about it, and I said, this happened, I told the story, and I said, so do you think that we should never speak out in a public place? Because uh, what if you think the person has beautiful hair? Can you not say to a person in a public space like that? Should you not? Because you don't know the rest of what's going on. And uh, uh, with my friend John, who said back to me, I said, no, I, I don't think so. He said, because you never know. Yesterday was clearly not a good, this person wasn't having a good day. But maybe, he said, maybe three months from now, when her life is going a little differently and she feels differently, she might be standing in front of a mirror sometime, combing her hair, and she might think to herself, you know, there was this woman who pointed out to me, that I have really beautiful hair. I have really beautiful hair. Maybe it'll be a better time for her to hear it. And so maybe you don't have to think every single time you say something in a public space to somebody you don't know. I don't know. You could think about that for a while. I want us to sit, but we haven't done that. And I'd like us to sit in a certain way with a certain practice. This is a practice of um, reflection on the ethical vows of Buddhism. There are five vows that people who are interested in studying and appreciating the teachings of the Buddha can align themselves with without accidentally allying themselves into a religion that they would be uh, subvert in some way their own religious path since they're non-parochial vows. And I like to not just take them as vows or offer them as people as vows and have them recite them as much as I like to say them and invite people like you to tell yourself that vow in your mind, say it to yourself, I undertake the promise or vow or precept, whichever you want, to whatever it is the vow is. And then just sit with it for a little bit. Because if I do that and I think about any one of them, what the mind does in the subsequent moments is it looks around and it says did i transgress in this in any way 
in the last couple of hours that I remember or days or whatever, weeks. And very often something will come up. It's like um, it's like an investigation of conscious consci- conscience. And it's in a it's in a sweet way. It's not to make you feel bad. So then I'll leave some time between there are five. I'll leave some time between them. And then we'll talk about the response you have to them in a little while. So first just sit comfortably. Take a breath in and out. And another breath in and out. Let your shoulders relax and your head sit up so that your ears are over your shoulders. And if you want to, say to yourself, in your mind, I undertake the promise to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking anything that is not freely given to me.
I undertake the precept to speak in a way that does not create suffering. I undertake the promise to not use my sexuality in a way that causes suffering. And I undertake the promise to not ingest in any way substances that lead to heedlessness and confusion. and activities that lead to heedlessness and confusion.
May these promises be the cause of happiness.
you're ready to open your eyes, look at everybody else on all the other screens in their homes. People who have shared studying with you this morning and listening with you. If you haven't had your screen on and you can do it now, I invite you to do that for the last period of time. So we can find some people that we know or don't know and wish them well. One of the things that I was thinking about all of last week and over the weekend and even now as we were sitting is that the great promise of occupying your mind with caring for other people is it liberates you from being preoccupied with your own stuff. And mostly we're, often we are held hostage. I feel that, maybe, I, I imagine you might you say, oh, if I only had a different mind, why am I thinking about this again? Or people will say, I know that worrying is no good for me, it doesn't do any good, but here I am doing it again. And I think that those kinds of awarenesses are really helpful. Obviously all those kinds of things that views that we have of ourselves that we realize are not helpful, to be able to notice them and replace them with kindness, sweetheart, you're having a hard day. To realize everybody's walking around with a mind, or everybody is probably more correct to say everyone is a mind walking around. Uh, and uh, however it is in its configuration, creating more and more or less problems. So if, if I am preoccupied with thinking about the well being of other people, I'm not preoccupied with myself and my own stuff. So that when the precepts say, may I, may these precepts be the basis for happiness. It's my happiness and everyone else's too, but it's my happiness to have a mind that's free of enmity, 